when uh, Pastor Jason and, and Billy reached out to me about um, potentially speaking at Christ the Redeemer for their Advent series, um, they showed me and mentioned that the desire for the series itself was to see who is Christ. We're answering this question, what child is this? And they told me what we would be doing is looking at different, the four different Gospels and looking at how the different writers, what they focus on, the perspective, will give us a different answer, a different facet to this question, who or what child is this? Last week we started with Matthew, and today we look at the Gospel of Mark. And when they told me I'll be preaching from Mark, I was in a bit of a quandary at first, because, as you'll see in a second, he doesn't really mention anything about Christ's birth. But before you panic, I do have a message for us, an Advent message, and so does Mark. And I think to better answer this question, though it may not be as apparent right away, to understand Mark and his understanding of Jesus, we need to know a little bit more about the gospel of Mark as a whole. What's distinct about Matthew from last week, as you may recall, is that his focus is to see how Christ is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. Not only is Christ the fulfillment of the Old Testament in his person, but also to see in what he teaches. How is Christ teaching a fulfillment of the Old Testament? So it wouldn't be surprising for us to see the bulk of Old Testament references in the book of Matthew, records of what Jesus had taught, various dialogues he had with people. Mark, on the other hand, it has a different spin on it. You see, Mark's emphasis is on Christ and what he did more so than what he said. Mark's storytelling is fast-paced, at times abrupt, and he'll often use words like immediately, as if he had a sense of urgency in telling this story. For Mark, there's less speech and more action. With that in mind, in his gospel, Mark's desire is to show us what Jesus has accomplished in a certain act in his life. And that is, Jesus has come to be the perfect, obedient Son of God. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 8, it tells us more specifically how he accomplishes this as the Son of God. And it says that Jesus, the Son of God, came in human form as he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The way Mark answers this question, what child is this, and which is the main point of my sermon today, is that he wants to present Jesus as the Son of God who has come to be the suffering servant of God so that in Jesus, God may fulfill his promise to save his people from their sins. Jesus, the Son of God, has become the suffering servant of God so that in him, God's promises is fulfilled. So Mark doesn't exclude the birth story because he thinks it's unimportant. Rather, Mark wants to 
urgently get at the heart of the significance of why he was born at all. What was, the Je- what was Jesus, the Son of God, born to accomplish? And he'll give us this answer in verse 11. In the first 11 verses of his gospel, as he introduces the story of Jesus, And what I want us to see is that in our passage today, that we see that the gospel of Jesus Christ is first a long-expected gospel. Second, we'll see that this gospel is a triumphant gospel. And finally, we'll see that in Christ, it is a reconciling gospel. And it is my hope that as we come to know more about Jesus as the Son of God and the suffering servant, that we will come to love him more this season. With that, if you could turn with me to the first chapter of Mark, and we'll we'll read the first 11 verses together. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, Make his path straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Let us pray. O gracious Father, we come before you and ask of your help. As we sit underneath your word, we ask that by your spirit and your power, you may tune our hearts to you. Even now, as we are entering into the thick of this holiday, this Christmas season, Father, it is not all joyful for everyone, though it may be festive, though there may be traditions, though we may have loved ones to give gifts and receive gifts from. Father, if we are honest with ourselves, there are times where this season also shows us the depths of our need for you. Father, I pray that the preaching of your word will illuminate our heart so that at least one month we can focus not in ourselves, not in the hopes that the world may offer, but to look at this child, to look at Jesus. And as we answer this question, to see him as a son of God and the suffering servant, I pray, Lord, that we may find hope and joy in him. In Christ's name I pray, amen. Mark begins the story of Jesus by making reference to the Old Testament. As we look in our passage today, verse 2 and verse 3, he quotes from various Old Testament passages. 
Verse 2 is similar in language and wording to Exodus 23, verse 20, and Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. And verse 3 is nearly identical to the words of Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. Now, even though they are not all references from Isaiah himself, Mark attributes these words to the prophet because all three, or all two verses, have one unifying message, and that is this. The story of Jesus begins with a divinely appointed messenger who comes to prepare the way of the Lord. Now, I think it's noteworthy to mention that Mark's beginning of the gospel, it doesn't begin with Jesus' birth, but rather he mentions something that's occurring way before Jesus even arrives, which is peculiar. You see, normally our stories begin with us. Our stories begin when we begin. I guess there may be times when we're telling someone else about our lives. We may start, some of us, with the story of how our parents came together and how they met. But even that, it's not our story. It's more their story. Yet for Mark and all the other gospel writers, the story of G Jesus begins in the past. So how are we supposed to make sense of this? See, first and foremost, as we know, Jesus is the eternal second person of the Trinity. And in this scene, in when he comes to earth, he takes upon human form, but he has always existed with the Father. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the three persons of the one God had existed in the Old Testament and even before time began. There was never a time when the Son was not. But another key point to understand is to see what this word gospel means or how it's used. See, many of us are familiar that the gospel means good news and that it's applied to the message of Christianity. But you see, in the ancient world back in the Roman times, this was a commonly used word, gospel, good news. And even then it was commonly used for a momentous occasion or event particularly, let's say, a victory in war, or maybe even with the coming of a royal son. There has been archaeological findings of a calendar inscription dating back to 9 BC, speaking of Augustus Caesar, and in that inscription it says this, the birthday of the God was for the world the beginning of joyful tidings or beginning of good news, which has been proclaimed on his account. You see, in this sense, good news is attributed to Caesar's birth, but it's good news after the fact. However, this is not the way the Jews would use the term good news. In fact, in, in ancient Hebrew, in ancient Hebrew, whenever good news is mentioned, it is relating to the announcement of some future event, specifically of future salvation. That's the way we should read this opening verse of Mark, is that we should read it by saying the beginning of the good news which has been spoken of in the past. 
In another words, for the Jewish people, the news of Jesus Christ was good news, but it wasn't new news. It reminds me of the Kelsey's Brothers podcast where they have a little segment where they say, new news. I'm not sure if you guys are familiar. But the thing is, Jesus is not new news. His arrival is not And at least it should not come to the surprise of the Jewish people because they had been waiting for this moment for a very long time. You see, if we look at even the quotes of the Old Testament in verses 2 and 3, we see that verse 2 closely resembles Malachi. Malachi, as you may know, is the last prophet of the Old Testament. But Malachi was 400 years ago. So we could see that maybe they were waiting for 400 years. But they've been waiting longer than that. Maybe we can pin it back to Isaiah. 700 years ago, when Isaiah the prophet came to speak of the prophecy of the one to come, Emmanuel, the one who will come to suffer for the sake of his people and to save them and deliver them from sin. Maybe it's been 700 years that the Jewish people have been waiting. But they've been waiting longer than that. Maybe we can even talk about 1,400 years ago when Moses came and God spoke through Moses and promised a deliverer, a person greater than Moses who would deliver his people. But if you know the story of the Old Testament, the people have been waiting longer than that. In fact, it is not just the Jewish people who have been waiting for the Messiah waiting for the anointed one to save us from our sin. Rather, it is not just the Jewish people, but all people. All people have been waiting from the beginning of creation, where God will fulfill his promise to bring the one from the seed of the woman who would crush the serpent's head, to undo the evil that our sin had brought into this world, The pain, the suffering, the hopelessness, the loneliness, the brokenness that you and I feel is the same feeling that humankind has experienced since the dawn of time. You see, the gospel of Jesus Christ is a long-expected gospel for all of us. And whether we in this room recognize God to be the one to save us and to say that I have been waiting for God or maybe even in this room or beyond. Maybe we're looking for something else to save us. And we will be unsatisfied until we recognize that it is God. It is God who will save us. And the one that we and our hearts have been longing for and waiting for is Jesus Christ himself. You see, the insertion of the gospel into the world is marked by Jesus' story. And Jesus' story is marked by the arrival of this divinely appointed person. Just as fresh buds of the flower or the warm air in the air or warm temperature in the air tells us that spring is coming, This messenger points us that when he comes, 
the Lord will soon follow. I mentioned that Mark seems to be abrupt and has a sense of urgency. And true to his storytelling, beginning in, chapter, in verse 4, Mark abruptly thrusts us with a new character named John. And the reason why he does this is that the prophecy of this messenger from the Old Testament By abruptly abruptly introducing John the Baptist, Mark, in as little words as possible, is saying, John, John is that messenger. You see, there is no introduction of John. There is no mention of his birth, as we may see in the other Gospels. But it is he who comes to prepare the way of the Lord. And the way he prepares the way of the Lord is by preparing people through baptism. Commentators may point and and maybe point out the fact and try to figure out what sort of baptism was John doing. Or maybe even the origin of John's baptism. But many of them, what they will say is that there is a theme from the Exodus that we see in John the Baptist and in his baptism. Just as Pharaoh was told to free God's people so that they may go into the wilderness and sacrifice and worship God. Just as when Moses, before going up to Mount Sinai, God came down to the people and told Moses to tell them that they ought to wash themselves and to wash their garments in preparation for God's coming down from the mountain. And in the same manner, John's baptism was this. As Jesus, the anointed one, was coming, preparing the way for the Lord was that the people were to prepare themselves. That they ought to cleanse themselves, to symbolically wash themselves from moral impurity, wash themselves from the sinfulness that they had. So John's baptism symbolized the moral and spiritual cleansing necessary at the arrival of the Lord. And what the cleansing consisted of was repentance and the confessing of sin. Now what the people needed was not simply an external cleaning. Anyone could have just washed themselves in the Jordan River. But what the people truly needed was not just an external cleansing, but in the truest sense, what they needed was to be clean on the inside, in the spiritual sense. But how could John's baptism do that? Could it? No. John's baptism could not do that, and he himself knew this. And that's why as we transition into verses 6 through 8, The water itself could not accomplish what it symbolized to do. And the reason is because the nature of sin is such that it cannot be resolved by any man. It is not something he could do. It is not something you and I can do. That's why it's very unique or very specific that Mark says in verses 4 that when John arrives, he proclaims a baptism. He proclaims a baptism. In other words, he is speaking on behalf of a baptism, not, that he, not a baptism he does, but he proclaims a baptism that someone else will do. 
And that baptism is the true baptism that can only be accomplished by God. And only it is by the baptism of God that would successfully render the repentance in the hearts of the people and to truly forgive them of their sin. And though John can't do it, he speaks of the one who can. In verses 7, where John has been silent up until this point, John finally speaks. If you could turn with me in verse 7, it says, And John preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. For Mark, the focus of John's message is not primarily in the reform of the people. Rather, the focus on John's message is to highlight the person who is to come. John's primary message is to showcase the one that he speaks of, to showcase the one who is mightier than he. And though at this junction he doesn't specifically say who this person is, we know that, God, that he is talking about God because he himself is the forerunner of the Lord. And as we read verses 7 through 8, we can gather two things about this coming one. The first thing is this. We know that this person is mightier than John in status. How do we see that? We know that John is a divinely appointed messenger who had such honor as the forerunner of the Christ. And that in a different gospel, in, in Matthew chapter 11, verse 11, Jesus himself says of John, no one greater has been born of a woman who is greater than John. And with John having this such great honor, it is so noteworthy to know that when John the Baptist himself says that he is greater than me, in status, so much so that I myself, I am not unworthy to untie the straps of his sandals. Now, I know it's cold. In the summer, maybe some of us wear sandals. And in our culture, we may read this and we can somehow gather there's a lowly kind of task involved in undoing someone's strap. But the true context of unstrapping someone's sandal is this. Back in that time, Jewish, wealthy Jewish people who owned slaves would have various tasks given to their slaves. But there were certain tasks that were so menial, so debasing, and so low that a Hebrew person would not give a task to their fellow Jewish people, to a fellow Hebrew slave. And what they would do is that this, these tasks would be so low that they would give, give these tasks to the Gentile slaves. One of those tasks was to unstrap the sandals of a person. So what does that mean for John? As great as John is, John is saying the one to come is so mighty that I am unworthy to even do such a lowly and menial task for him. Maybe I can illustrate this. Maybe for the children, since I'm sure many children do the chores in the house. Imagine the lowliest chore you can possibly do at home. 
I'm sure it's something like cleaning the bathroom or the toilet. Or maybe it's cleaning out the gutter for some of the dads. Or maybe if you have a dog and you kind of let it roam around out in the yard, that it's someone's task to kind of go around and, and, and pick up their droppings. Whatever is in your mind of the lowliest task that you can think of, this is what John is essentially saying. This one who comes after me is so great that I am not even worthy to clean up the toilet. I am not even worthy to clean the gutter of his house. I'm not even worthy, if Jesus had a dog, to clean after him. You see, for John, the distance between the status of himself and the one is to come is so great that though John may be one of the greatest to ever live, even that pales in comparison to God. This isn't a statement of self-effacement or of false modesty. He recognizes the difference between himself and a holy God. Just as Isaiah recognized the difference of himself when he came before the throne room of God, he immediately knew the difference and the chasm between himself and a holy God. This is what John speaks of. And the second thing John points to is that he confesses, not only does he pale in stature, but because of, he, because of that difference, he also pales in his ability. John calls him the mighty one. And he qualifies his might by explaining what the mighty one can do. In verse 8, we see that it's a, John says, I have baptized you with water, but the one after me will baptize you in the Holy Spirit. See, what John is saying here is this. I may prepare you I may prepare you for the coming of the Lord, and my baptism in the water may prepare you in a symbolic sense, but no amount of water could ever accomplish what the coming one could do. What you need from me is not a cleansing of the body. What you truly need, I cannot give to you, and that is you need the cleansing of the whole of you, your whole self. And not just for a moment, but for all eternity. It needs to be a permanent cleansing. And John recognizes that he is unable to do this. But only the one who can come. Only the one who will come can. And again, Mark, in Mark fashion, after John talks about the one who was to come, he abruptly thrusts a new character into the story. Again, to say with as little words as possible, the one who is to come is Jesus himself. Jesus will come as a mighty son of God and he will accomplish. He will accomplish what John cannot do and what we most need. And that, and because of that, not only is it a long-expected gospel, but the coming of Jesus is also a triumphant gospel. Because God will accomplish what he has set out to do. Which leads us to our final point by asking this question, 
how will God do this? How will God be triumphant? First, we see right away in verse 9, it says, In those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee, and he was baptized by John in the Jordan. Jesus is baptized in similar fashion of the people who came to be baptized by John. But why is Jesus baptized? Is, he, is, is Jesus being baptized because he needs a cleansing of sin? A commentator well expresses the theological significance of Jesus' baptism. And he says, Jesus associates himself with sinners in his baptism and ranges himself in the ranks of the guilty, not to find salvation for himself, not on account of his own guilt in his flight from the approaching wrath, because he is at one with the church. He is at one with the people of God. And he is the bearer of divine mercy. Jesus is baptized to assume this posture. He, he takes on the baptism of the very people that he will come to save. And though he associates himself in his baptism with the people... It is only his baptism that is received with a response from God. In verse 10 through 11, when Jesus is, only when Jesus is baptized, is there a response from heaven that the heavens are torn open, that the Spirit of God comes down like a dove, and the voice of God comes down to Jesus to confirm him as the Son of God. Now, I want to take this time really quickly to focus on this title, Son of God. It may be quick, it would be easy and, and on a quick glance to think that Son of God, oh, he's a you know, second person of the Trinity, Son of the Divinity, which is true, but this title, Son of God, is in reference to his obedience. You see, throughout the Bible, there are references and mentions of sons of God. Adam is referenced as a son of God. Israel themselves are mentioned as a son of God. But where they fail, Jesus is the true son of God because it's only Jesus who is truly obedient to the Father. The title son of God is in reference to the obedience of the person. Obedience to the Father. And so when Jesus comes down, or when Jesus is baptized, and the Father speaks and confirms that he is the Son of God, what he is saying is this, you and only you are the true obedient Son. What significance does that play? What significance does Jesus' obedience play? The significance is that Jesus being the only obedient Son confirms and prepares him for the ministry of the suffering servant that is seen in Isaiah. In fact, if we look at Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 42, verse 1, it reads very closely to verse 11 here in our passage. Verse 42, uh, chapter 42, verse 1 in Isaiah says this, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights, 
I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. And he himself later on in Isaiah will be the suffering servant who will take on the torture and the death that the people deserve. The suffering servant will be shamed, despised, rejected, oppressed, smitten, afflicted, pierced for our transgression, and crushed for our iniquities. The gospel of Jesus Christ is good news. It's good news because Jesus dies. The good news, or if I could say it, that rings a bell more closely during this season. Glad tidings to us is none other than Jesus Christ comes down so that he may die. Later on, Mark is more explicit with this. Mark chapter 10, verse 45, he mentions that the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. How? By giving his life as a ransom for many. How is this good news for us? Us today. In Lee Summit. Sitting here, Christ the Redeemer. On this day. How is it good news for us? It is good news to us. Because what was closed off at the fall. When Adam and Eve were barred from the garden, from the presence of God, when access to God himself was severed between man and God. You see, in Christ's death, the way is made open again. It's good news to us and not just the Jewish people, but for all of those who trust in Jesus. It's good news to us because we have access to a holy God. How do we know this? We know this because Mark is so careful, so careful to note something that the other gospels do not. I'll read it again. In verse 10, in verse 10, it says, When Jesus came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open. Now that's interesting. Because no other gospel writer will say or describe the heavens opening as something being torn open. And the reason why Mark is specific to use that language is because he wants us to read this narrative and get to what Mark wants us to see at the end of his gospel. And that's this. When Jesus Christ dies and hangs on the cross and he breathes his last, what happens? The curtains are torn open. What he wants us to see is this. Remember, for Mark, the nativity story is not unimportant. But he wants to get at the heart of why Jesus came. And the reason why Jesus came as a son of God, to be the suffering servant of God, is so that he may accomplish for us access to our Father in heaven. That is the point of his message. That is the point of the Christmas message for Mark. You see, in Jesus, as a suffering servant, 
he takes upon the curse that you and I deserve. But also as the obedient son of God, the blessings of his obedience is granted to those who trust in him. The way to God has been made by the son of God. And it is good news to us because about from what Christ has done, we also may be sons of God. Not because of our righteousness, not because of our accolades, not because of our status or our might, but because of the one who is greater than us. So I close to encourage you this Christmas season as we continue in this Advent series to look more deeply into answering this question and asking, what child is this? I pray that we may use this opportunity in Advent to see more deeply who Christ is and why he came. And that as we look more deeply and as we ask the Lord to help us sift through the distractions of the presents and the lights and the Christmas trees and the gift giving, that he may allow us to see more clearly that Christ is not only for us, but for other people out there. You see, maybe it's you in this room. And if not, I'm sure you know people who are out there, loved ones, who are long expecting, long expecting this gospel. They may not confess it. They may not know the language of it, and they may not know Jesus. But my hope and prayer is that as we fall in love with Jesus more, that we will have a heart not only for him, but for the people who need this gospel as much as we do. And that my hope that as we share Christ in this way, that more and more people may join with the centurion at the end of Mark's gospel, where in Mark's gospel, chapter 15, verse 39, where the centurion who has just killed Jesus and looking upon him confesses truly this was the Son of God. Let's pray. Oh, most merciful Father, we thank you so much that Christ has been born. We thank you so much for this season that we may spend a little bit more care and time and attention to marveling at this great mystery of the incarnate Christ. Father, I pray, though, I pray that we may not just be sucked up into this Advent season and that we would just single out this great gospel message only for this month. I pray that it may be a catalyst to remind ourselves and be renewed once again that the baptism that Christ has done, who has cleansed us from our sin, is not a joyous message just for December but for every month in the calendar year and for every month in our lives. Help us to see that this is glad tidings of our lives. And as we come before you, I pray, Lord, that we may find hope 
in Christ, that we may find joy in Christ. And we pray, Lord, that you may encourage us to know that we no longer wait for his first coming, for he has come and has accomplished the very thing he has come to do. Thank you, Father, for your word. And may you bless your people. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.